Hello, Axe of Pod listeners. My name is Brandon Shu. I'm the host of Axe of Pod. I have a very exciting show for you today. We have a panel discussion around safety and micromobility. And on the panel, we have myself as the moderator. We have Peter Deppy from Commute, CEO of Commute. And we have Peter Treadway, who's a founder and CIO of Acton. We have Vince Safani, who's the CEO at Joyride, who's a technology platform provider for fleet operators. And we get into a lot of different conversations, including kind of the ongoing litigation that's occurring in the space, some regulation hiccups that have occurred in California and other places, along with just how technology providers and hardware providers like the ones we're talking to today, along with the operators themselves and other ancillary parties can help the journey of improving the safety of micromobility. So we hope you enjoy, and uh, thanks a lot. All right, welcome back, everyone, to Acts of Pod. Today we have a uh, special panel. We're all on a Zoom meeting right now, and probably won't see that ever, but we're recording the audio nonetheless. Welcome to my guests. We have Peter Treadwell. Is that right, Peter? Treadway. Treadway, sorry. Peter Deppy and Vince Safani of Joyride and Peter Deppy from uh, Commute. How are you guys doing? Doing great. great. How are you? I had a podcast a couple of weeks ago with AJ Chin from, he's a former risk manager from Bird and John Wackman of Nyland Johnson. We talked about some of the scooter stigma going on out there, mostly led by some class action lawsuits and basic shudders and fears of underwriters out there that, that write these risks every day. And I thought this panel would be a good way to kind of illuminate some of those safety specific areas of concern. Just recently here in the last couple of days, I think on August 21st, there was another large plaintiff's tort case in California filed. I think it's the same law firm or similar law firm that filed the other two actions. But this one was one for Lyme and one for Bird, and they each had about 42 or 45 plaintiffs in each case. The basic undercurrent of, of both lawsuits was a, kind of a lack of maintenance. Looked like most of the actions were, were fairly specific to early Bird and Lyme issues that, that came up. And they also had a couple of manufacturers named in these in these lawsuits as well. Uh, nobody from this call, so that's positive. But I just get some some introductions. We have a variety of different uh, industries within an industry here represented: Joyride, Commute, and Acton. So we have a manufacturer, two manufacturers, one, but one specific to docking and one more specific to scooters. And then we have a, a technology fleet management software company with Joyride. Peter Deppy, why don't we start with you with Commute and just give a give a brief background and introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having us here at Commute on the podcast today. Some of our partners acting in Joyride also on the call. Our whole mission is to become the universal charging infrastructure for micromobility. And the great thing about our platform is very technology, vehicle, vendor agnostic to where we can pretty much plug and play just about anyone, whether it's hardware or software within our sort of network or ecosystem. And we've been around since 2018, really developing our infrastructure and our hardware. It's come a long, long way since we, we started with the initial prototype. It was built out of you know PVC pipes and just random things. 
to get the, the the function down. And now that we have the function down and the form has come a long ways, we've been you know happy enough to be with a bunch of different launches and a bunch more coming up to where we can help park and charge vehicles at a very, very reduced cost. But also, I guess going back to what you mentioned on maintenance, something that we look to do in the future to improve maintenance is the FMS can alert us to hold different vehicles in the hub if they need maintenance by the fleet maintenance people. So we got some interesting things that we really want to do to help improve the lifespan of the vehicle. So we have security of locking the vehicle in and then a bunch of other things really to improve revenue generating situations. And then also back to the maintenance and security of the vehicle, like I mentioned. So that's a little bit about us commute. I don't want to take up too much, but that's a good intro and I'll, I'll pass it on to either Acton or Joyride, whoever wants to go next. Peter at Acton, why don't you go next? First of all, I changed my shirt. Oh, that's better. We needed a we needed a logo. I do have a logo here on my, Good for on my you. vest. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But yeah, my name is Peter Treadway. I am a co-founder and as well, I'm CPO of Acton. I, you know, we started more in the consumer space about maybe seven-ish years ago. We've done everything from what we call rocket skates, which are electric skates, up to skateboards, up to scooters and bicycles and trikes and other things that we're in development on at the moment. But we also do some of the nuts and bolts of that, like uh, motor controllers and stuff like that. We have a little bit of software and a little bit of, little bit of firmware. It, it's interesting. You have a good group here. I think all of the companies here just overlap just a little bit, but we all work together and we kind of we work really well together as a, as a team, so it's, it's good to see a panel like this. So we I do what I can. Yeah, no, it's, it's you know perfect. We're based in California. Uh, we started out in LA. We're now in the Bay Area. We make vehicles that are are really really robust. We saw the writing on the wall when Lime and Bird launched their vehicle. But first, we were a little concerned that maybe it might end up like the bicycle shared uh, industry in China, and if you just have mountains. Of of vehicles stacked up in the, in landfills, but it proved itself out, and we were in development on a scooter and, and launched at a, at a great time for the industry, and it's been going really well, and COVID is kind of this funny double-edged sword where micromobility is kind of like the last place where people feel comfortable actually transporting themselves, you know, aside from their own cars. Public transportation has made people a little bit nervous at the moment, being all close to each other. But on the other hand, if the city isn't open, you can't run the business there anyway. So we've seen in China how opening up, like what's happened to the micromobility world, and it's a really good time to be involved in this business. And so we're, you know, I think the, the three companies you have here are, are pretty well poised to help build and, and strengthen the business model for this industry because we all provide solutions for you know, different categories for that. Vince? Yeah, thanks for having me back, Brandon. Uh, number one insurance podcast in the world. But, uh, <laughs> when I started it, I was the only one. So <laughs> now there are others. Yeah, so I'm Vince, founder and CEO of Joyride. Started the company back in 2014, but we're a platform that helps enable any entrepreneur to start their own bike or scooter share system in their own city. So we enable a lot of micromobility operators all around the world. We started out uh, helping bike sharing operators with our own hardware, eventually launched our uh, 
launch our own bike sharing solution kind of as a proof of concept in the UK. And then from there, just started really doubling down on the, on the software side and building out our platform that that works with and different hardware manufacturers like Acton and different docking stations like Commutes. And so we have some really great partners on this call and friends of ours, friends of Joyride. And, and yeah, we try and build up the Joyride community and, and leverage our entire network to try and build out a really great solution for our partners. Well, I think what I wanted to hit on here today was how can this group, along with you know the industry, not only appear safer to alleviate some stigma and you know bad publicity—not bad publicity, but ignorance—I would you know I would probably say versus publicity. So not only can how do we change the perception, but how do we actually physically improve the industry as well from a safety perspective? Because obviously every Every industry has its weaknesses, and you know we can't argue with some of them. And I think publicly litigating some of them has probably brought some better solutions and better innovations to the market, and probably has in this group as well. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that it's been under public scrutiny. But you know, what are some areas where there are still some weaknesses in the armor, and how do we improve them? Maybe we can just kind of use this article. There's a couple articles. There's one in the Washington Post that I sent you guys. The Wall Street Journal's had a couple. This plaintiff's attorney, you know, is basically arguing that there's been you know massive deficiencies with with maintenance with these companies that are named in this lawsuit. So were there early mistakes? that any of these organizations made or the industry made that that have been solved or how do you know how do we solve them going forward anybody that wants to take it go ahead and do you want me to name people <laughs> no, no, it's okay i think we'll get the swing of it as we move, move into this but yeah i mean you know one of the things that we noticed and one of the things that really got us into this into this business is that the all of these operators started with consumer vehicles when they were, you know, something you might buy off of Amazon. And I, I'll, I'll try not to name names. I think every once in a while I might accidentally or need to actually do that. But but there are a lot of scooters you can buy off the shelves that are not suited to the shared environment. And what else were they going to do, really? You know, you mentioned mistakes. These are mistakes, certainly, but there was no way that they could build this business and build the hardware and the software and everything and launch that all at once without some kind of proof of concept. Now, in Silicon Valley, people sometimes take that proof of concept a little too far and they they ride it out a little too long because some people are trying to start a business and some people are trying to exit from that business. And those are different strategies, right? So we see a lot of operators, or maybe not a lot, but a few operators that are maybe bigger, that might be looking more for an exit than sustainable business. And so they want to cover as much of the globe, um, as much of the globe as they can uh, in as short amount of time as possible. That's something that I think, can we call that a mistake? It's a strategy that sometimes leaves customers, you know, the actual end user in a, in a pernicious situation, you know, it, it can be dangerous for, for people. But on the other hand, as some of us here, you know, we grew up in a time where we really had to take care of ourselves. We didn't wear necessarily helmets when we were riding bikes until, you know, the data and the pressure of consumerism as well as safety started to 
make us do so, right? I don't know whether a lot of people who were born into the sort of super litigious and super protective society really can understand that. So it's hard for anyone who's ever been injured knows that when you go to the insurance company, the first thing the insurance company wants to know is how can we make somebody else pay for this? It's a very complex equation where there's no way to predict the whole thing from the beginning and there's no way to fully plan for it all. And most of our vehicles, by the way, are still on the road. You know, a customer might buy five, six, eight, or ten of, of a certain type of vehicle versus buying just one of ours over the same period of time. And we aren't the only company doing that. There are other companies which we'd like to think that we're better than they are. There still has been much improvement in the industry. I'll just introduce the other two guys here. The, the software also has made it a lot easier to operate and keep track of and protect the vehicles and the, and the process. And so has the ability to organize the vehicles, keep them in, in good shape and, and proper trim and, and repair as well. And so I think you guys can take it from there. Yeah, so that's, that's a good segue. Maybe to your, you, Peter, Debbie, obviously a lot of these early complaints and issues and media attention that has been garnered through the last couple of years has been revolving around the American Disabilities Act and, and these scooters piling up in places and, and, and disabling access and that sort of thing. So obviously you're playing an instrumental role in docking and making sure that there's more organization to how these things are deployed and, and returned and everything, everything like that. How does that continue to evolve and kind of where are we in the spectrum of that adoption, so to speak? One thing that we say here, and some people might get offended by this, but we say dockless doesn't work. And, you know, dockless has its, its pros and obviously its cons, and it was a good proof of concept like, like Peter from Acton was talking about. But now I, I think we're, we're kind of past that phase where full dockless, where there's no infrastructure supporting in, in any fashion whatsoever, it really lends itself to being very risky on, on many fronts. And one of them is the maintenance of the vehicles. So having fully dockless vehicles, it's really hard to keep track of in some cases. We have different maintenance tools on the software side, on the fleet management system, and then really robust hardware and vehicles from, from the ones like Acton and then the software from Joyride. But at the same time, you, it's really, there needs to be some type of organization, some type of clarity, or a lot of the cities hate how they really have no control. So one thing that right. we see is being very, you know, kind of the, the happy medium is what we call flexible docking. And that's sort of a hybrid between being a fully station-based solution, which has its pros and cons as well, but then also not really being a fully fluid thing, if you will, for lack of better terms, like a, a full dockless system. So flexible docking, you could provide incentives to have people bring the vehicle back to the hub. Once it's at the hub, like I mentioned earlier, you can maybe flag it for maintenance and we hold it. And now that scooter or bike cannot be released until it's picked up by a maintenance person. So there's some things that we can see right off the bat would be really advantageous for not only the micromobility rideshare provider, but also for the riders. So now we're, we're holding captive those vehicles so that they can't take them for a ride and potentially you know, hurt themselves if they're long overdue on some maintenance, if it's just tightening brakes or whatever have you. 
So there's some things that, you know, a docked or full dockless or partially docked solution that really just needs some type of infrastructure to help support in, in some capacity. It doesn't have to be a full one-to-one parking to vehicle ratio, but as long as there's something there to help with a good portion to keep them more reliably charged, reliably locked away. So you don't have people just pushing them over, which then, you know, further reduces the lifespan of the vehicle and then leads to maintenance problems down the road. So there's a bunch of different things that, you know, having some support by some infrastructure, whether it's ours or some other docking or smart charging hub system out there, it really helps not only on making cities comfortable with having these mobility options available to the people in the area and the community. It also helps, you know, the ride share with maintenance and, and then many other things. That's my two cents on how this solution fits in nicely with well-designed fleet commercial vehicles and then also with fleet management systems. Vince, where do you see geofencing, fleet management, and and the you know ability on the software side to you know help with some of these issues? Software plays a direct role, just as you indicated on geofencing side, which is really important to not just keep riders safe. I mean, well, one, it, it helps keep riders safe, so maybe they're not accidentally riding on a highway, and remotely from our system, our operators can decide what speed to set the scooter depending on which area the the rider rides in. So if they accidentally ride in a park, they're not going to be able to go 15 miles per hour or 25 kilometers an hour through a park and potentially injure a pedestrian or accidentally ride on a highway and where they actually shouldn't be riding at all, where it's definitely not safe for someone riding one of these vehicles. So the speed plays a big role. Geofencing plays a big role. There's lots of things that we can do on the software side to make sure that someone has proper training before they ride a vehicle. Now what we're seeing is some operators are putting videos and training materials within like a how to ride section in the mobile app. So any new user has to read all this stuff, check off a rider agreement, learn how to use the vehicle properly, making sure they're wearing a helmet. There's lots of really cool things that we can do on the software side even lowering the speed for a brand new rider. So maybe they can't get up to the maximum speed. A lot of the safety features are really going to come from just more robust hardware, as Peter from Acton was mentioning. Those early scooters that some of those operators were using, I would not ride today. Kind of like the equivalent if you asked me to ride a Ford Model T on the highway today. Like I would not use, I would not use that car today. I, <laughs> There's like one that we, drives in my neighborhood, so somebody's still riding a Model <laughs> T. I don't know if it's a Model T, but it's an early model. So in my mind, we're 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 just hitting version one of what a shared scooter is. I can't wait to see what the what scooters are going to look like five and ten years from now. How robust and safe that hardware is going to be, and the next generation of hardware is going to have the geofencing built directly into those devices, so it's even better and faster. And we're seeing some operators have that now, and so. Software can play a big role, but I think a lot of the safety aspect will also be on the hardware side too. Peter Treadway, when when you guys are looking at the future of your vehicles, and maybe it's even happening right now, are the components and parts and areas of potential, you know, maintenance worries? Is there is there a point in time where they start talking to, you know, the operator or the the rider? you know, about necessary upkeep and that sort of thing? Yes. And it's happening already. And as time moves on, we put more and more sensors on more and more parts. 
you know, if, if you design things properly, even the way of a vehicle, if something fails on the vehicle, it will still lead to alerting a sensor that something is going on, you know, even, even if that part doesn't necessarily have a sensor on it. Our vehicles, they are very well built. They're a lot thicker and stronger. And, you know, this is something that's, that's really important. And then using parts that are easy to maintain and even things like the cables and the wires, we, we map out very carefully and we make sure the connectors are in places where you can access them. You don't have to take half the thing apart to get to something simple or, or like a recurring, you know, something like brake adjustments or something like that. You want to have to have like 10 operations before you get in there. It still needs to be difficult for vandal or a, a thief to get to, but the, the the process should be efficient for, for the operator itself. And, and in doing that, you make it easier as well for the operator to maintain their own vehicle because they're less likely to let something go for a longer period of time if they can access and deal with something right away. And we try to standardize or use some standardized parts that are commonly changed out in the brake category, for example, and things like that, that are just to make them easier to, to maintain. There are now, and there will be more sensors and ways of, of letting the, the operator know when there is a pending issue or that there might likely be one. As we go forward, we also discover there's a sort of schedule to, depending on your region, how often you're going to change tires or something like right. that. You know, these, we're developing these patterns right now. Our customers are as well. You know, we have some in Iceland and we have some in South America, you know, in very opposite or, or different right. climates. And that can affect the longevity of different parts. But there's a map being built at the moment. One of the allegations in the latest, and I think the previous lawsuit was citing technical bugs that could have sudden and excessive braking issues. Is that a software issue? Is that a hardware issue? Where does that come into play? And how how has the industry avoided that with other other operators? Well, I, I can say a little bit about that. You know, one of the issues is that they had, first of all, if you have the brake and the motor in the front wheel and they both, you know, and there's some sort of failure like what you're talking about, that's going to cause some very devastating issues to arise. You know, because if the right. front wheel seizes, you're, the whole thing is going to flip right over. That suggests that maybe you shouldn't put the motor in the front. It would be better if you didn't have a brake in the front, although there are some places where it's, you know, regulations require that. And so we're, you know, we're okay with that. But then the front brake should be adjusted in a way or, or designed in a way that it doesn't, that if you do have that failure, because really failures are, are going to occur at some point down the line, that when they occur, that they are not dangerous. From what we've seen, a lot of it can be mechanical, but we also, we allow our operators to create their own geofences and geozones. So if someone puts a restricted area where say a rider can't bring the scooter into an area that rider may unexpectedly not realize that there's a restricted area there unless they're looking at their mobile device first of all they probably shouldn't be if they're riding they shouldn't 
So it's almost impossible to know exactly where these restricted areas are unless we're seeing some scooters have coming out with like mounts on them where you can mount your phone, which is which could be good, or if there's a way to an alert a rider. But unfortunately, in most scenarios, they don't know. And so it can be pretty abrupt. If it isn't designed on the hardware side, as Peter was saying, it could be a pretty abrupt stop or slowdown on the vehicle. We don't like to see, but it can happen for sure. Peter, Deppie, you know, one of the, from an insurance perspective, I mean, obviously helmets continue to come up in conversation. It's almost on every single application. And there's certainly always some sort of question and answer scenario where we're asking about helmets. Now with COVID, this plays a more, even more interesting role than it used to because the sanitation or the sterilization of the helmet becomes a bigger problem or issue. What are you seeing from your perspective uh, in terms of how operators or, or third parties are working to deploy the, you know, the use of helmets? Yeah, so I know, so I, on a handful of vehicles that I've seen and come across, they have sort of uh, little lockers on either the basket of a bike or on the back for a helmet. But something that even we've been, you know, contemplating, thinking about doing is even add some type of smart locker system on the hub as sort of a central way to, you know, release helmets through an FMS to whoever it wants a helmet or maybe it's required that they need to pick one up out of it to start their ride. So it could be a combination of, of the two, whether the helmet is on the vehicle, whether it's a scooter or a bike, or on maybe a central point like our hub sometime down the line. And then even on sanitation, I mean, we've seen many clever ways of, of sanitizing through different lights that have the wavelength that's just at the right wavelength to you know, destroy the bacteria or the virus or some type of spray system to, you know, sanitize as well. So there's many different ways. I don't think anyone has really come across the perfect way just yet. I think we're all coming close and converging on, you know, what will become the best way to hand out helmets for rides and then figure out whether or not the person is actually wearing the helmet throughout the entire ride. That's something I think sometimes we're sure you could take a selfie at the beginning, but are they really you know, are they going to just take, take the helmet off after, after they take the selfies? We haven't found the perfect solution yet to solve this issue for providing helmets on, on the insurance side. But I think eventually it'll all come together to where we can know that this person, this rider is wearing a helmet throughout the entire trip. And then at the same time, after they drop off the helmet or pick it up, they know it's sanitized or going to get sanitized at a regular interval. Right. We haven't come across the perfect solution yet, but I think... There's probably some in the works right now that maybe I'm not even aware of that are the perfect solution, but looking forward to seeing what comes out. Yeah, Peter, Treadway, I mean, between pliable soft shell helmets and telescoping helmets, I've seen some that collapse on themselves. I mean, have you guys looked at any sort of in-vehicle storage mechanisms to promote that sort of thing or seen anybody else do it? I'm just curious, yeah. We have been looking at that, and it's something that comes up, and it's come up even since we were doing the consumer vehicle, you know, many years ago. And it's kind of a funny thing because, I, in my opinion of it, and it, you know, this may prove to be true or false down the line, but the vehicles, the micromobility industry, is like a first-time user industry. Right? Everybody who we're trying to design for the first time. So, yes, we need a stopgap. I think. Ultimately, though, I think everybody's going to be 
everyone's going to have to have their own helmet at some point. And maybe it'll still be a collapsible helmet and be very convenient to carry around. I, you know, we, we've talked to a number of companies, some, some who have folding, some who have collapsible, some who have, you know, uh, like a cap that you put on that you then put the helmet over, which I think is a really good solution. We've talked about many times actually manufacturing our own helmets. It's funny because just because of all the regulations surrounding it, we felt it would divide our our resources too much, you know, and and, and especially our, our marketing. Because it, it, even though they seem like they overlap really well, it's a different world, the helmet and safety equipment world that, that we would have to then dedicate quite a lot of time to. So some customers really need something, some kind of helmet and, and so forth. And it, it's really, it's like, just when you think you have a really good solution, you know, COVID comes along and now, yeah. now we're kind of back at square one, you know, like we're, right. we all have to like scramble to figure out how to deal with that. It's like the solutions that we have now have to be much more sophisticated. I'm looking forward to the time when everybody just has their own helmet because it makes sense to have one and we're no longer in that first time user proof of concept. It's an interesting observation you know people having their own helmets to me just as kind of an outsider looking in if if we're talking about the sharing model of micromobility where it's we're sharing scooters it feels like it's probably always going to be some sort of issue that that is out there just based on the fact that we don't own the scooter or we don't have the scooter in our constant possession so why might we have a helmet in our constant possession but that, that brings me to a question around platforms, maybe to Vince. Are you seeing more subscription model platforms, you know, in the midst of COVID or just anything else, you know, from a from a use and misuse standpoint? Obviously, there's a lot more people that would use a shared scooter than would a subscription model where it's just you're using this scooter all the time until you return it to the organization. Do you think this model has legs and do you think there's a way for you and Joyride and all of you to kind of integrate into that model? In terms of, you mean shared micromobility or just shared kind of in general? The subscription model, I, I think, is getting more popular. Like longer term rental? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really interesting. So we support that business model within our within our platform. More and more operators are asking us for it, which is interesting. We didn't know what kind of legs, as you were saying, it would have at the beginning, but almost every day now we have a new operator asking us to have a longer-term rental model as part of the business, where they'll do long-term rental of the same vehicle, but then also continue to do the shared model. And then some actually just come to us just for the longer-term rental option, which is really interesting. Maybe if I could kind of touch on the, the helmet conversation too, not to take us too far back. I think the helmet, Peter from can you mentioned helmet selfies, definitely one interesting way of doing it. But like he said, you could just remove the helmet and we've seen helmet selfies at the end of the ride and at the beginning. And there's always real ways to get around it. I think like, without getting too political here, I think the way to keep riders the safest is to ban cars. And then uh, cyclists, and, and <laughs> yeah. th- that, then they'll be the safest. But you know, if, if you're going to force people to use a helmet, accessibility is interesting. But what we've seen is accessibility doesn't necessarily mean much. If you've ever been to Vancouver, it's actually the law to use a bike helmet. So the bike sharing system there 
has helmets attached to every bike. They provide liners, so you can put a liner inside. Almost no one wears a helmet anyways, and the police don't really care from what I've seen and experienced. So I don't know if even helmet accessibility will actually drive adoption. I don't really know how you could force it. If cities are making it the law and they're providing helmets and they're providing sanitation devices, people still don't really use them. Then what else are you going to do to keep people safe? I don't know if there's like a true helmet solution there, but if it's required for an operator, if it's required in a market, then we can enable it. And we're looking forward to seeing what kind of technology drives adoption, whether it's a uh, long-term rental subscription model or just trying to keep people safer by uh, providing helmets to people. We can enable it through software. Well, let's talk about regulation. You know, obviously, this is a very, you know, very new concept versus the, you know, the, the car. We, we've seen California get pretty involved lately in both the ride-sharing space from a car standpoint with Uber and Lyft trying to, with California trying to impose, you know, more employment-specific uh, regulations on Uber and Lyft. And now it appears they've been meddling quite a bit in the micro-mobility space with this AB 1286 recent legislation where as, as recent as like a couple days ago, they had a requirement that said, uh, I'll read it right off the regulation, the shared mobility provider agreement between the provider and the user shall not contain a provision by which the user waives, releases, or in any way limits their legal rights or remedies under the agreement. Obviously, there was a big backlash from this. My sources tell me there was multiple letters to the governors written from these large operators along with large insurance companies saying, sorry, you do this, we're out. Where do you see legislation and the micromobility space intersecting? And do you, do you think there's going to be more of this to come? Yeah, I think so. It's unfortunate. It, we continue to see a double standard in the automobile industry with the micromobility industry and how car manufacturers, car rental companies can get away with a lot more than what a micromobility company can do, which I think is unfortunate. And whether whether you think like if you rent a scooter, you should have to share all your data in real time, where you go, how you use it, when you use it with the government, but you shouldn't have to do that if you drive an automobile. That I mean, that that's completely different. But what we continue to see is this double standard existing that micromobility operators have to jump through so many more hoops than any like car manufacturer or a car rental company would ever have to do. Unfortunately, that continues to be the trend. I don't know if we see it slowing down. I see even in the UK, the DFT has said that you want to use a scooter, you have to be have a valid driver's license as well. And they've classified these vehicles as motor vehicles, which I think is unfortunate, which will prevent a whole bunch of people from actually even using these types of vehicles, which can be safer than cars. And you're not going to injure someone with a scooter the same way that you can injure someone by driving a, ve- uh, a motor vehicle. So we continue to see this double standard, unfortunately. Anybody else have any perspectives on it? I agree with most of that. If someone had, if they had never had a motorcycle before, if someone invented it today, it would immediately be outlawed. And this this was a statement that was passed around for years to try and give people perspective on automotive laws and, and traffic laws and stuff like that. Those regulating the micro mobility industry should, and as well, those 
partaking in, in it should consider that, you know, that, that the use of these vehicles is potentially dangerous, you know, and, and that you should be aware of that and you shouldn't get on what you shouldn't like avoid driving one night so you can go out drinking only to get on a scooter later on and, and just do whatever you want. You know, there's this sort of party atmosphere, which I think you can't regulate out of existence. You have to get people to like, just have the right perspective on that. I don't necessarily know what the best way to do it is, but we end up suffering for that. These companies, you know, Bird, Lime, all the other company operators, they, they don't really have the money to, I mean, even, even though Bird and Lime seem like they're these colossal giants, if somebody were to sue them, you, you'd find out pretty quickly that their, you know, their money is moving very fast and comes in really quickly and it seems like a huge amount. It goes right back out really quickly. People can still sue now in California. They don't need to have this extra law saying that they don't have to sign the waiver. I think the waiver is actually a really good way this is something that I think is important for people to take responsibility for themselves. That waiver makes them do that. And now they're getting rid of that. Well, they'll have more lawsuits, which could decimate the industry. It would be decimated not because people were tricked into riding something dangerous, but rather because people were not taking their own lives and the risk seriously, which is what people really need to do. So you, you see videos all over the internet of people being very irresponsible on these on these scooters. If you want to do that on your own property, it's your business, you know. But but if you're out in the middle of the street, you're in the middle of the street, and you are not surrounded by the you know the metal cage of a, of a car, you know. This is the point, you know. You you better know what you're doing in order to, to use one. And it, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a bike, a scooter, a trike, a tuk-tuk, or you know, whatever. It can be more dangerous than a car. So, and and actually, I don't know whether it's, it's technically more dangerous than a car. But if you get injured on a scooter, you can break some limbs and get cut up and all of that just from falling over, right? Yeah, the but statistics are far more deadly for for motor vehicles, for sure. <laughs> well, it, it just seems like. In California, especially, California leads, I think, the world on number of laws. And they're not, every year, nobody's reducing the laws that we have. They're just adding more to them. And I understand, you know, you want to protect people. You want to protect workers. We don't want to go back to 1863, where we're all sort of indentured servants to our, you know, the companies we work for. And we have very few freedoms and anything is our own darn fault but it would be nice and i think it's important not to constantly take responsibility away from people such that they then sue everyone in sight so i i I would say that 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 balance the balance may already exist and there might have been a few loud voices that pushed for this for these new laws to be passed i don't know exactly but if you put too much responsibility on companies that don't that just came into being, you know, and barely have their feet under them. You're just going to kill everybody. Everybody's business, right? And, and, and thousands and thousands of people work for these companies. You know, if you want to stop all innovation, this is, this is certainly the way to, to step one. So, again, I'm not against having regulations, but those waivers are all.
my two cents I want to I want to throw in there. So since we're we're based in Michigan and in Detroit and Flint and kind of in the I guess the home of Motor City, we're we're around you know automotive suppliers and even my background is in automotive suppliers and manufacturing. So we hear different things on laws that happen in the automotive space. Honestly, probably more than micro mobility here in Michigan, since micro mobility is treated more as like the the little brother of automotive here, unfortunately. And it's kind of interesting how even in the automotive space, there's cases and, and there's new features that I don't know if it's been expressed, but governments will be able to almost control cars in a way. So say the police are doing a chase and they're able to slow down cars ahead of them to enable them to be more you know, safe out of the way of the, the car chase. So there are some things that, you know, that might seem helpful in some ways, but then also is that all that's happening? Is that all the data that they're collecting on those vehicles? And it's, it kind of relates to micromobility in a way that different local governments are requiring that the data be shared with them almost at all costs. And it's really hard to understand whether or not that that is you know, ethical in some ways or practical in some ways. Uh, it's a really a hard, uh, fine line that you have to really walk to understand um, is this something that we really need and want, or is it something that people are really just trying to, you know, control almost to no end? So it's, I don't really know. I, I haven't really picked a side yet on, you know, whether or not it's good or bad. I, I think there's cases for both. In some cases, it's good. In some cases, it's, you know, it stifles innovation in many ways and stifles people or companies getting into new markets in some way, in a lot of ways. That's my two cents on from what I've seen here, you know, based in Detroit, and, you know, always hearing about the automotive world and not really hearing as much about micromobility. Yeah, it seems to me there that cities, particularly, it seems in California and some, you know, Los Angeles County and uh, a few others that have really just draconian regulation. I mean, it seems they want their cake and kind of eat it too. They don't want to be involved in the funding of the technology, but they want to be intimately involved in the regulation, almost like it's a public utility of some kind, which is obviously publicly funded and taxpayers pay for it and everything else. So I don't see cities ever going the, the way of trying to turn this into a utility, but I guess it's possible. I don't think the taxicab model is, you know, the utility model is one to duplicate or replicate. So I don't, I don't know if we want to go down that route again, but it certainly seems like everybody's trying to get their claws on this from the regulator's side. I think this was a good conversation about, you know, what what technology can do to play a role in, in safety moving forward. So I, I appreciate everyone being on the uh, the show today and uh, thanks for thanks for participating. Thanks for having us. Cool guys. Have a good weekend. Thank you for tuning in to AxaPod. Uh, my name is Brandon Shu. I'm the host. If you are looking for more content or more episodes, check us out on iTunes, or you can visit our website at axofpod.com. Thank you, and we appreciate you listening. <laughs>